Come on, Daddy. Come on. We're going to go canoeing. Come on. Come on. Go. Come on. Son, I don't know. I don't really like canoeing. I'm way too big for that thing. Come on. I don't. Don't make me do this today, son. No, come on, Dad. It's so cool. Come on. This is good. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Just get in. Get in. Just come on. Get, get in. Get in. Get in. Get in. I don't know. I don't like this. I hate this. The water scares me. The canoe scares me, quite frankly. It's just, where do I even sit? I'm supposed to sit on that little pole right there? This is no good. Okay, I'll do it. Come on. I'll just jump in. Woohoo! Yay! Okay, come on, Daddy. You try, you try, you try. Okay, okay. Um, here we go. Alright. Steady it. Stop jumping around, okay? I need to hold it steady. Okay. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. No, no, this is good. This is good, right? We're having fun. Father and son. This is great. Yeah, no, good. Mm-hmm. No, shut up, okay? That's good. Okay. I'll just sit down. Okay. Okay. We need to start going. Okay. Yeah, this is good. Oh, no. Oh, oh geez. Okay. Oh, boy. That would work better if we were in water, wouldn't it? Okay. Oh, boy. Okay, that's absolutely ridiculous. Anybody ever canoed before? Ever done that? Yeah, unfortunately. It's really a whole lot of work for not that much fun, actually. Um, and you get on the deal, and the worst part about the canoe is that it's so unsteady, really. When you, when you get in them, I mean, this is, this is bad even on, on land, but in the water, they're just so much more tippy. That, to me, is like the worst problem of the canoe, is that it just, it's so unstable. And when you, when you sit down on it, th- this awkward sort of thing happens where you start to tip, and if, if you're like most people, when you start to go over, your natural impulse is to grab the side, which is usually the worst thing to tip you right over, right? So when you're starting to sway back and forth, like you get into these modes where you're just like, oh, I'm scared, I'm nervous, I'm like, oh, I'm going over. And when you grab, that's the very thing that ends up flipping you over. Our emotions can do the exact same thing. When we're going through life and stuff gets a little bit weird and emotions come up in us that are either um, healthy or unhealthy, we have a couple options about how we respond to that. If we go with our natural impulse, our knee-jerk reaction, if we just grab the canoe, oftentimes that's going to be the very worst thing that we could possibly do. There are some feelings and some emotions that are so strong, they will train wreck your family. There are some feelings and emotions that are so powerful that they will get you to walk away from good friends. There are even emotions and feelings that are so strong, so deep, and they feel like they're so core to who you are, that they would get you to walk away from God. And certainly His truth. We are continuing this series, Hide and Seek, today. And the idea behind it, as we're looking at the life of David, is that there are moments in David's life where he is full-on going for God. And when he's going for God, I mean, watch out. He's hard to stop. And then there are these other moments, these dark moments, these dank moments in his life, where when he's off, man, he's really off. He's really not doing that well. 
And we've been looking at David kind of figuring out when to, when to do what he's doing well and how to avoid the things that he's not doing well. This is one of those dark days. This is why you're sitting in a musty smelling, smoky, leaves on the floor room. It's kind of like you walked into just the dankness, the darkness of sin itself. And my hope is that this morning we kind of wrap ourselves around this concept that we need to resist our natural temptation, our natural impulses that go contrary to God's word. When we do that, we'll be shifting gears on this sort of concept here. Wouldn't it be cool if we could take every thought or emotion captive instead of letting our thoughts and emotions capsize us? That's the thought that we're driving for today. Is there a way to do that? Is there a way to recognize it? Is it even that bad to let our natural impulses and emotions just run the show? It's kind of like the Incredible Hulk. I don't know if uh, many of you, you undoubtedly know who he is. Maybe you read the comics or uh, you're old enough to have watched the TV show with Bill Bixby, and um, he would turn into Lou Ferrigno, um, big, huge weightlifting guy, which was the incredible, they just painted him green. Um, I was actually in a Home Depot in San Luis Obispo where we used to live, and and, uh, Lou lived in that town, and I was walking down the aisle. I don't know why I'm in a Home Depot, by the way, because that's so far from who I am, but um, I was there nonetheless, and I'm walking around a corner, and I come around the corner, and there's like the Hulk right there. He is huge. He was at least my height and probably, I don't know, 12 times as wide, and uh, just, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, But the Incredible Hulk, when he would get that surge of anger going through his veins it would just kind of run its course and he would go from a normal mild-mannered sort of guy into this hideous huge creature and our emotions our feelings the unhealthy ones left unchecked can do the exact same thing to us They start to boil up. And in that moment, we can choose to guide and direct those moments. Let God take those captive. Let let God own those. Or we can just push God away, hands off. We're going to be in charge of our canoe. We're going to handle ourselves. Thank you very much. And we let emotion run its course. There are emotions like fear, loneliness, anger, lust, That if you leave unchecked, not only can capsize you, but a lot of people around you. That's maybe sometimes the the worst part. Yeah, you get yourself into trouble, but a lot of times it's not just you that your emotions seems to affect if you just let them run wild. We're going to look at a story in the life of David today that, to be honest, I wasn't super familiar with. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to 1 Samuel chapter 21, relatively early in your Bible, if you start there, just start cruising through, you hit 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 21. Now what's happened at this point is David has killed Goliath, this huge giant that was just the absolute warrior hero of the Philistine people. He's he's done away with him. This little boy goes after this huge giant and conquers and wins. Because of that, 
people really start to fall in love with David and just really like him. And he's gained this big sense of momentum, a big sense of following, a big sense of fame and notoriety. And as he's just kind of brought into the kingdom of, of uh, Saul and his kingship, he's, he's told that he's going to be made king someday by God. A lot of things are starting to look up for David. But because of David's notoriety, popularity, Saul gets pretty jealous. He gets pretty upset. And so he wants to do away with David. He wants to do away with the threat. And so he says he's going to go kill David. Well, David finds out about this. He gets some help from Saul's son, Jonathan. They form a pretty strong, amazing friendship. But David, in fear, takes off. It's funny. One moment he's killing giants, and the next moment he's just totally scared of some relatively normal guy. It's a lot like us, I think. One moment you ever feel like, man, you're just really hitting the sweet spot of God's will. You're just doing what you know he wants you to do. And then it doesn't take much for that just to flip-flop, and you're going, man, I don't even feel like the same person today. How, I thought I got over this. I thought I finished this. This is totally where David's at. But you know what? I think he's going to go into this state of fear that's really going to lead him down a crazy path. And this is what I think is so amazing about this. I remember when I was late high school, early college, and I started to pray and let God know that he could have all of me. I had a real heart-to-heart moment with God where I was like, God, whatever you want to do with me in my life, it's it's all yours. The reality was, I didn't have very much. I was like 18, and I didn't own anything. I had like negative 17 bucks in my bank account. But I was like, God, you can have it all. Like, all of me, it's all yours. So just feel free to enjoy that, you know? Um, But I've noticed just now at 32, with an amazing wife and a new baby boy and we have a house now and we've got a couple cars and I like my job and stuff's going pretty well. We got more than negative 17. We got negative 15, I think. Isn't that close? <laughs> We're at a place now where I actually have a lot to lose. And out of that sense of like, wow, I don't want to lose all this. It's so much harder for me to say, God, you can have it all. Because I want to hold on to some of it still. Because I've seen when the canoe gets a little bit rocky, and I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to let God stabilize this thing. I think I'll take control. David's going to handle a similar sort of situation. He has he had had nothing when he was this little kid. God, you can have all of it. I'm just this little shepherd dude. I'll go and fight your giant. That's awesome. But now he's got tons of friends, popularity, position. He's got a lot to lose, and therefore he's fearful. And he gets so scared that he's going to lose that, and maybe even lose his life, that he takes off running from Saul. One of the first places he thinks to head is the tabernacle. It's the church. Maybe he's going to go see what God wants. Maybe he's just trying to figure out what to do and get a moment away. But he runs to the city of Nob, and that's where we jump in here, 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen. David went to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, 
Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is nobody with you? Because the reality was, at this point, David had gone to seek the Lord before at this place. He'd met Ahimelech. But because he was kind of a person of position now, when he would go, he would come with a full-on entourage. He would come with a bunch of people. And so now, here's this pretty big deal, this pretty big dude coming in to the, the tabernacle totally alone. And Ahimelech's like, what are you doing here alone? It would be like yesterday when you were at home, if there was a knock on your door and you opened the door and... There's President Bush right there, alone. No secret service, no staff, just George. And you're like, hey, W, come on in. Let's, what are you doing here alone, by the way? This is a little bit weird. Same sort of thing. This is, wow, why is David running alone? This is not normal. And in that moment, David's already running. He's already ex- experiencing a sense of fear. He gets into this place with Ahimelech, and Ahimelech starts asking questions. What, what are you doing? Why are you alone? I think that fed his fear even more. And in a moment here, he, he's going to go from the potential to take that feeling of fear captive and still go the right way, or, or he's just going to let his natural impulse take over, which is to lie. And unfortunately, in this case, that's what he chooses. He gets scared. Is Ahimelech on my side or is he on Saul's side? I don't know. This is making me nervous. Uh, I'm just going to lie. And he just defaults to that. And in this moment, it's going to seem at the beginning, you guys, like this isn't really that big of a deal. Like most of our little sins seem at the beginning, eh, it's not that big of a deal. But this is going to snowball to a place of huge proportions. Why why is nobody with you? Verse 2, David answered Ahimelech the priest with a lie here. Well, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I told them to meet me at a certain place. I don't have any men, but I'm going to tell you that I do, and they're just meeting me at a certain place later. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. He needs some food. So verse 4, the priest answered David, Well, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Now, in the tabernacle, they would have these 12 loaves of bread that ceremonially they would offer to the, the Lord. They'd put this hot bread up there. After it would cool off and kind of uh, get a little bit less fresh, then they would pull that away, and usually the priests would end up eating it. But even so, it was, it was because it was part of this ritual, this ceremony, it was, it was special. And in Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, there was some pretty detailed rules and regulations about who could and couldn't eat this bread and what sort of lifestyle you should be living as, as you are to partake of this bread. It was kind of an interesting sort of deal. And Ahimelech was a godly guy, and he's going, okay, well, I've got this option here. The law says, really, you're not supposed to be eating this. It's not really for public consumption, but there's a, there's a huge need. And in this moment, this is kind of a sidebar issue. In this moment, in the Old Testament, this priest gives an example proving that the law of God is more about the spirit of it than the letter of it. 
The law of God in this moment was meant to provide for people's needs and and help people and guide and direct people. It wasn't just some strict rule. In fact, later in the New Testament, Jesus goes back and uses this exact obscure passage to confront the Pharisees. When the Pharisees are calling the disciples on working on the Sabbath, and they're like, they can't eat this grain and work it up. They did that on us. They're doing work. You can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus calls them back, and he said, no, it's about the spirit of the law. It's about need, compassion, people's help over just following these list of rules all the time. And so he goes, he's just trying to figure out, do the right thing. All right, sexual relations was prohibited if you're going to be taking this bread. So he said, if you guys have done that, then you can't have it. David lies again. Verse 5. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? He's just, he started the lie. He's been asked some tough questions. He's just continuing to lie here, and it's just getting getting worse. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Okay, at this moment in the story, if this were a movie, the lights would kind of dim, the lighting, the cinematography would totally change, the music would get a little bit eerie, and then the camera would shoot over over David's shoulder, and then back, lurking in the dark, kind of back there, it would zoom in, and you'd just see a pair of eyes back there. Seedy, creepy. This is some slime ball back there lurking in the dark. Who is this guy? Verse 7. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Doeg was there lurking in the back, and he's an Edomite. And they make sure to point that out because the people of Eden, Edom weren't necessarily on board with Israelites. And so that he is working for an Israelite is kind of already kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing sort of thing. This is a little bit weird. We don't know why he's there. But then this phrase that he's detained by the Lord, that's kind of interesting. Because that means really that there's a high likelihood that Doeg had had to go to the tabernacle to cleanse himself of some sort of misdoing. This just adds to his, he's just kind of a shady sort of dude. Hanging out at the tabernacle, sneaking around, spying on, listening to this conversation. He hears what just took place between David and Ahimelech. Remember him, he's going to come back. Verse 8, David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. Okay, he's still lying. There was no business and definitely wasn't urgent. Verse 9, the priest replied, here you go, here's a sword. The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. The ephod was this linen robe that the priests would wear. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. And so he walks out of Ahimelech's presence. He's just lied, but Ahimelech doesn't know it. Ahimelech thinks he's helping out the king by David being on this special secret mission. He's given him something to eat and given him this sword, Goliath's sword. This was a pretty sweet, huge sword of swords. Lynn talked about it a couple weeks ago. And he takes off. 
That day, verse 10, David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his ten thousands. David is that. I don't know what the tune is, but that's the song they sing. So he's walking into town. Okay, this is just not like the, the best intelligence on David's part. David killed Goliath, who was the warrior hero of the Philistine people. He then manages to get a hold of Goliath's sword. And then in his fear, he continues to run from Saul. And he goes to this city called Gath that was one of the Philistine cities. He goes into Goliath's hometown looking for safety. He's the dude that killed him. And he's walking in with the guy's sword. Hey, remember me, guys? I I killed your hero. And here's his sword. Uh, Oh, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. And he's hearing the songs and the whispers. Isn't that the guy? That's, that's the guy that killed Goliath, isn't it? Isn't that the guy? And as he hears the whispers and the song, I think his heart just started to get more fearful again. The emotions start to kick in. The canoe's definitely starting to rock. Verse 12. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. I mean, he's just like, okay, I'm scared. I'm going to fake this up. I'm going I'm to lie again. And so he just starts, I don't know, he's running around, marking stuff up, drools coming down all over his beard. And this is just gross. There's two options that I think are going through his mind. He'll go, okay, one of two things is going to happen here. Either they're going to think that I'm absolutely crazy and go, well, we got to have pity on him. Just let him go. He's a total whack job. Let's, let's get him out of here. Or they'll go, oh, this isn't David. This is just some kooky, crazy guy. And they'll let him go. Either way, that they're going to let David go by this madman lying thing. Well, some scholars say, well, that was a good stratagem of war. That was a good way just to escape. Other people go, you know what? He's just continuing to lie. And someone who had been um, designated as king is now playing himself as a fool. He just lets the emotion run over and he's panicky and he's going to take control of the situation again. Verse 14, Asius said to his servants, look at the man, he is insane. I love this. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this? He's got a good sense of humor. Just going, yeah, we only have five today. Bring in the six. Oh, here he is. Some people think that Ashish knew that David was faking it, being mad. But he let him go anyway. And they think that he did this because Saul is currently king of Israel, but he knows that David is going to become the king. And Saul and and Ashish are enemies, and he's going, okay, wait a minute, if this guy, David, is an enemy of Saul's, and I befriend him, then maybe, just maybe, when he rises to kingship, he'll remember what I did for him, I let him go. And maybe it won't be enemies. Maybe this will be something where we can join up. Whatever it is, he lets him go nonetheless. 
having lied a couple times, he is taken off. He finds himself in a cave. Some people come out there to meet him. These guys that are, the Bible says that they're distressed, they're discontented, they're in debt. These are kind of the lowest of the low. They surround him. He finds good company. People that are just kind of on the same page with him. But there's something still special, something anointed about David. And he becomes their leader. These will become David's mighty men that we'll look at later in the series. And he, he goes on to get his family taken care of. He sends them to Moab because he's fearful for their life. Sends them off. Meanwhile, Saul gets back to him. Everybody seems like they're plotting against Saul. So Saul's like, man, what am I, what do I got to do? And he gives this political talk to his people. He's like, man, I'm, real, I'm really the king. I'm the guy that you should be looking to for everything. I've given you so much. What's this David guy going to do for you? And he's like, are, are all you guys just going to keep betraying me and keep um, ignoring my leadership? The lights get crazy. The music starts to get a little bit eerie. The camera zooms over Saul's shoulder and lurking in the back, squinty eyes, is our buddy Doeg. Look at chapter 22, verse 9. But Doeg, the Edomite, again, reminding you is the Edomite. He is not an Israelite. Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse, which is David, come to Ahimelech, son of Ehitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Saul's like, Why why are you aiding and abetting this traitor? This is not good. And Ahimelech answers back, because Ahimelech, remember, he was just innocent. He thought he was helping Saul's business that David was on. Ahimelech answered the king, verse 14, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't know what's going on. In fact, he tried to get some detail. He got as much as he could and sent David on his way. He was innocent for all his intents and purposes. And as, as far as his rest of his family and the other priests go, they were certainly innocent. They probably didn't even have much of a clue what was going on. Saul's wanting nothing to do with it. The king said, surely you will die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. This is, this is huge. I mean, this is the same king, Saul, that wouldn't kill the Philistine enemies. I mean, he was all hesitant to go do that, but now he's ready like that to go kill his own priests. This guy's a real piece of work. 
And he turns to these guards and says, you, you kill them all. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Even the servants wouldn't do the bad stuff that their king was so quickly ready to do. And so, music gets eerie, lights get dim over the shoulder. Now, Doeg walks forth. Verse 18, the king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite, maybe doing something he had been waiting his whole life for, maybe not, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put the sword to Nob, the town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. He just wiped them out. And yeah, Saul... Certainly this guy Doeg have a part in that. But you realize all of this started with an emotion, a natural impulse just to lie on behalf of David. Verse 20, But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. But then catch this. David says, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Okay, you tell that to me. That This, this would be not a pleasant moment between me and you. Which makes this next phrase even more ironic. I'm responsible for the death of the whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me here. <laughs> really? I'm not buying that. You guys, there are some emotions and feelings that run so strong and so deep that they will get you to walk away from truth. you got emotions over here. You, you've got God's truth over here. Sometimes they match, but a lot of times they don't. And a lot of times that which is the first impulse is, is definitely the wrong thing. A lot of you would say maybe that you're kind of an emotionally driven sort of person as opposed to logic or truth driven. And, and that's okay. God, God made you that way. But all of us need to keep that un, in check. To take our, our thoughts and our feelings captive, as it says in Second Corinthians chapter 10. And when we take those captive, instead of letting them capsize us or people around us. In fact, just for a moment, think for just a moment. How do you feel about yourself right now? If you just took a couple seconds and you just think right now at this very moment, how do you feel about yourself? Feel pretty good? Do you hate yourself? Somewhere in between? Frustrated at this, that, or the other thing? How do you feel about yourself right now? There, there's your emotion. And then on the other hand, you've got what God says about you. What God says to be true about you what God says to be true about His relationship with you and He. Now, if what you feel about yourself is different from what God thinks about you, 
Who's mistaken? You or God? Your emotion or God's truth? It's a really, really important question. It's a really, really important thing to process your emotions through God's truth. God gave you emotions. You were designed to feel and to feel things deeply, but not outside of the context of His truth and His plan. Because there are some feelings and emotions that left unchecked or natural impulse will lead you to destruction or other people into destruction. So you got to take those thoughts captive. Right when I was starting in youth ministry, I went to work for a guy that I had interned for. He was on his way out, and so I came in. We had a pretty good relationship, and he sat me down right as I was starting, and he said, Ron, there's going to be things, you're young in this, and there are going to be situation circumstances that you could get into that if you just do what your natural impulse is it's going to train wreck you and your whole ministry maybe even your your life and so you need to be mindful of those moments you got a girl in your office that's just a couple years younger than you that you're counseling and what starts is just comforting or encouraging can suddenly just go way fast way bad he's like you need to be able to process things he said You need to think in terms of like the worst case scenario. At this point, he was in his late 20s, early 30s. He already had four kids. He had a very successful youth ministry. And he said, if I get in a moment where my emotion starts to take a run from me, he said, I got about three seconds to do something with that. I've got about three seconds to take that thought or that emotion captive and send it into God's ownership. Or I don't do that and I let my emotion run its course and who knows where that's going to take me. He said, so if I get in this relationship, some girls in my office or whatever, he had the worst case scenario instantly, three seconds. Whoa, this is awkward. This is weird. I wish that this weren't the case in my life, but this is something I'm feeling. I'm going this direction. It could be anything from lust or anger or jealousy or fear, whatever it is. And you start to feel yourself. Canoe's getting rocky. And our temptation is to reach down and grab. And he said, you got to think worst case scenario. He said, if I, for just a couple moments of pleasure, I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my kids. I'm definitely going to lose my job. I may even get sent to prison. So is all that worth a couple minutes of emotion unchecked? Certainly not. But you have to begin to practice this. You have to begin to set your boundaries before you get into those situations, not when you're in the situation, because then that's always too late. And then you start to get into that, and you feel the canoe starting to rock. You feel your hands going down to take control yourself, and you go, three seconds, okay, God, you're going to take ownership of this. God, I'm going to let you handle this. I'm going to walk away. I've got way too much to lose over here. And this is the right thing to do. That three-second thing is so powerful. Because what starts is just something small can train wreck in an instant. If you don't take it captive, it'll capsize you. Uh, Yesterday or the the day before, um, kind of a bummer, um, our garage... um, 
we, we drove the car into the garage and we get out of the car and we walk into the house and just before we walk in I hit the button to close the garage door and as we hit the button it made a popping noise that was not normal and uh, I was like this is this isn't good because um, I'm so savvy that way uh, and so I'm like what, what's the matter so I walk over and uh, apparently like one of the rivets or screws or whatever that hold the the, the panes of the, the door to the frame um, had popped off and uh, I don't know if the rivets or screws or what I, I'm no good at that stuff so whatever something was wrong and uh, I'm like well I got to do something about it but I don't know what and I really don't feel like it right now so I didn't do anything about it uh, we left and came several more times which meant you, you had to open and close the garage it's always good when you open the garage before you go and uh, so we, we did that well Last night, I mean, we can see that now this, the second row of garage door s- stuff down from the top, it's a technical term, was separate, um, separate from the frame, and I still didn't do anything. And uh, <laughs> so this morning, when I woke up actually to come here, um, this was actually a real drag, um, I, I go out to the garage and hit the button to make the door go up, and it starts to go up, and that first pane bends over like it's supposed to, to go in. And then the second pane doesn't bend over. It just keeps going up. It was at this moment that the garage door motor thought it would be a good idea to keep pulling. And so our garage door started, and then it just kind of went like that. <laughs> Anna came running out. What, what's the matter? What? Oh my goodness. What? And our car is like this tall. So now I, I can't get out. This we're totally stuck. This is this is not good at all. Some emotions and feelings can do the exact same thing. What starts with just a little screw falling out and you go, "Ah, eh, whatever. I'll get to it later." That's really not that big of a deal. That little lie, not that big of a deal. That little lustful thought, not that big of a deal. That little outburst of anger, not that big of a deal. And you left that unchecked, and pretty soon the whole thing starts to come apart. And the next time you go into the situation, you're interacting somehow with the garage door of your life, and you hit that button, and then it just crumples. And now you're stuck. You can't move. You can't get out. You can't get in. It's the same thing that happened with David. One little lie, it snowballed, and hundreds of people lost their life because of one little thing. This is why it's my hope and prayer that we avoid this week, this darker week of David's characteristics. That we would begin to practice that three-second rule of taking thoughts and emotions captive and juxtaposing our emotion with the truth of God, never separating those. That as we do that, I think the life that we live will leave a lot less devastation and things will continue to be in the place that God intended them to be. To that end, may you live. Let's pray. Father, um, Thank you that you're a God that forgives us. 
when we make missteps. Lord, I ask that you would uh, just make your presence and your truth real for us, especially in moments of emotion, especially in moments where the canoe's starting to rock and our natural impulse would be to grab the side. And so often, Lord, that just ends up flipping us over. But help us instead grab on to you. Help us instead just reach out for your word and your truth and your hand in those moments where our incredible Hulk emotions can just go a little bit crazy. And so, Father, we just close out this morning asking that you would take our our whole life, emotions and all, and that you would own them, that you would captivate us, Father. So just... Here we are. Take every single drop of us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, in order to get out of the garage this morning and get over here, I had to go back and begin to try to pull apart the wrangled, tangled mess that was now my garage door. Begin to put panels back in place where they should be. And then manually was able to open it. God is totally in the business of taking our emotional this and straightening it out and putting things where they should be. He's in the business of taking something that is kind of a mess and bringing it back to where it should be. That's the hope that we go in today. You guys, I love you a lot. If you need anything, I'll be up front. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. So have a good one. Bye.